and I can say that I've been blessed to have people like you in my life, you know, like getting a chance to meet you at, at 17 years old and then have, you know, reconnecting 10 years later and then having guys like Coach Hobbs and different guys. I just feel like I was kind of set on the path to meet all these people that were going to help me in my career. And it, it's just been a blessing. I always say that people get on me because I always say my life's been a blessing. My career's been a blessing because it really has because of people like you and everybody else that I've met in my life. So thank you. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Hey, CC, it's uh, great to see you. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, I know we were we were set to do this live next week at the dedication of our latest field renovation. And due to COVID times, we are now going to do it via this Zoom call. And we look forward to dedicating that baseball field this spring. But I just wanted to say hello. And how's the family doing with COVID and quarantine and everybody holding up all right? Yeah, everybody's doing well. You know, we're trying to starting to get back to some normalcy, I guess. My oldest son is playing baseball right now, so that started. School's about to start back up. We trying to figure out if it's going to be virtual or not. But considering, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, the summer's been good. <laughs> Are you guys okay? Yeah, the same. I mean, we're all in the same boat, so you know, no one can really say anything like, "Oh, whoa, is me?" Right? We're all mm-hmm. we're all just figuring it out. So, I just wanted to start. You know, this podcast really highlights the great givers and kind people we've met over 25 years, and you're certainly right up there with them. And I wanted to start a little bit at the beginning. You know, our relationship goes all the way back to your days in high school back in 1997-98. Your senior year in high school, I was the then scouting supervisor for the Seattle Mariners. And I actually had a winter team back then. You actually pitched on a couple times. And mm-hmm. that was quite a heyday for high school baseball in Northern California, the likes of yourself. And Jimmy Rollins and Pat Burrell and Dontrell Willis. I mean, it was just a heyday of high school baseball. And I know you had a, just a great high school team. But I remember I, I loved you as a two-way player. And uh, I thought you could hit. CC ought to be sitting on a fastball right here. He is. Hits it deep to center field. Junior will watch it go over his head and out of the ballpark. <laughs> How about that? You talk about the big man staying behind it. That was a line shot. And that's straightaway center. Unbelievable. I was going to go down with the ship on that. And I, I think for, for people, to put it in today's terms as a, of a player, for me, I thought you were a much bigger, better Shohei Otani. Am I, <laughs> have I, did I lose my mind or is that a compliment? Man, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I was that good. I mean, I still I still feel like I was super raw back then. You know, like I was just a baseball player. I was just playing. You know, didn't really know mechanics of pitching, didn't really know the mechanics of a swing. But I could do both really good. You know, it was just something that, like, I've always been able to do. So that's a high praise. It's a high compliment. I'll take it. But I don't know if I was that good. But uh, I really, I really, really enjoyed that time of my life, obviously, growing up here in the Bay. Those guys that you just named, along with ex-Navy, 
You know, we played on some 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 great summer teams. We had a lot of fun. Jimmy's little brother Antoine Rawlings, Joe Thurston. You know, just to name a few of the guys from you know that I actually like played with. Like you said, it was just a great time for NorCal baseball, and we had some studs, man. We had like we had a lot of guys that made it to the big leagues that you know came out of kind of like the same time period. Yeah, and I actually have in front of me your scouting report, which <laughs> I rarely read to players, but this one I might have been a little. I might have been on on this one, but I mean, I really wanted you in the first round. The Mariners picked two spots after the Indians, so that didn't come to fruition. But I even, uh, I did all the fibbing I could get. First of all, I started you off at 6'7". So I went, <laughs> I went right out of the shoot, 6'7", 230. So I just, you know, we sent that into the office thinking this guy is just some Herculean of a man. But, <laughs> but baseball uses a two to eight scale, eight being the highest, like Hall of Fame, all-star level kind of tools. And I had your velocity as a seven, fastball velocity, seven, movement, six, curveball, five, slider, seven. You were pitching back in high school. I mean, back then, you know, you topped out at 94, 95 miles an hour when I saw you. And back then that was unheard of. Now mm -hmm. it's not even a thing, you know? Yeah. I went on to write exploding fastball with plus life, easy velocity. Sometimes he's wild in zone, but hitters are overmatched. Very resilient arm, maintains velocity, and always wants the ball. I put a resembles a bigger, stronger John Candelaria. Use as starter, but use as DH, which, you know, I worked for the Mariners at the time. We had Edgar Martinez, who could have been the best DH. <laughs> Best DH of all time. So when I says use a DH, they might have laughed at me. But uh, but that's my report on Karsten Charles Sabathia. That's insane. That's crazy <laughs> to hear that, you know, to hear like a scout report on your younger self. Yeah, my curveball was terrible. I don't know how you gave it a five. That, that thing was probably like a two. <laughs> well, maybe and you know what? I threw that thing in the big leagues, too. I can't believe like it. I mean, I I went like maybe five or six years in the, until I started throwing my slider. So Six years, I threw my curveball, just flipping it in there. I would throw it early in the count, but it really wasn't a good pitch. And I, and I you know, Carl Willis really taught me how to throw a slider the end of 2006. And I kind of like just took that in, ended up winning the Cy Young in 2007. But like I said, I was just so raw. I remember my very first bullpen after I get drafted. Um, I get drafted 20th pick, 98. I go to Burlington, North Carolina, and I'm in my first bullpen a day later. And Carl says, Carl Willis, He's the pitching coach for the Indians now. He was my rookie ball coach, my first pitching coach. And he goes, all right, let me see a two-seamer, four-seamer, slider, change-up, you know, everything you got. Let me see it, you know, in, you know, in your bullpen. I'm like, what? what, what? Like, what? Two-seam, four-seam? I'm like, bro, I, I grab the ball right here, <laughs> literally right here, and I throw it. And when I want to throw a slider, I just drop my arm down. He was like, what? Like, this is our first-round pick. Like, he don't know how to throw a two-seamer or a four-seamer. So he had to teach me all of that. He taught me how to throw a four-seamer. And I went from throwing 93 to 95 to 97, 99, you know, touching 100 sometimes in two weeks, you know, just kind of learning mechanics and really learning how to put the ball in my hand. And then still from when I got drafted, I had to learn my changeup. So I learned my started learning my changeup really young and didn't really get a feel for it until I was about five or six years into the big leagues too. So, man, I was just always like a work in progress. It's crazy. Well, it, it certainly worked out. I, I remember sitting in your home on Denninger Street in the spring, meeting with you and your mom before the draft. And for scouts, predicting high school pitching and how they're going to turn out is pretty difficult. But I, I felt there was definitely something different about you in a good way. I mean, 
back then, did you think, oh, I'm definitely going to be a big leaguer? Or was there still a lot of doubt? No, it was still a lot of doubt. You know, I mean, obviously, you know where I grew up. You know where I came from. It was too hard to dream that big, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, I couldn't even... It was just day to day. Like, I, you know, it was, what do I have tomorrow? Do I have a game? Do I have a scout coming over? Do I have an agent, like a school? So it was just so much going on that I wasn't even really thinking about, like, making it to the big leagues. It was just just making it out of Vallejo, making it out of the crest, to be honest. So whether that was going to college, get a football scholarship, or getting drafted, it wasn't even really about making it to the big leagues. It was just about making it out of my situation, if that makes sense. So I didn't really start worried and thinking about the big leagues until after I got drafted, you know, like um, then I'm like, okay, so now I got a lot of work to do because I actually have to make it to the majors, you know? So for me, it was just, it was really literally one day at a time. My grandma had passed away my senior year, probably right, you know, right around that time. She passed away in February. So right before the baseball season started. So I just had a lot going on and I was just trying to make it through that, that year, you know, and, and everything ended up working out, you know, blessings, you know, everything worked out for good, but that was really kind of like a, it was a weird time in my life because I was going through so much, but it was such a promising time because I had so much going, you know, for my future. You mentioned growing up in Vallejo, which, you know, for people who don't know Northern California, it's about 20 miles north of Oakland on the Bay. What was life like growing up in Vallejo? It was a good life. You know, it was rough, obviously, looking back on it now. I grew up in the a, in a area of Vallejo, which called the Country Club Crest, which is notorious for whatever, you know, it's, it's the inner city. So, but me growing up there, you know, it's just what I knew. Was, I was comfortable there. So, you know, I have all my fr- my friends and family lived there. Obviously, I played a lot of sports there. I played soccer, basketball, baseball. I was always too big to play football. So that's what, hence why I play soccer. <laughs> but it's just, it's a tough city to grow up in, but it's a sports town. If you look at just the history of the baseball players that came out of there, it's amazing from Tony Longmire to Jason Shelley to Dame Hollins. And, and then, you know, even after me, you know, they have big leaguers now. You know, Daniel Johnson, Willie Calhoun, Joe Thurston's the first base coach for the Mariners now. So it's just a rich history of baseball and athletes, period. But baseball, it's, it's a baseball city, man, which sounds crazy, but it really is. And baseball really drives that town. So A's or Giants growing up? I was an A's fan. I was an A's. I went to a lot of Giants games. My dad worked at Merrill Island, and he would always get tickets. So I went to, I mean, probably from 86, I can remember, until my junior year of high school, which was 97. I went to every Giants opening day. So every day that they had opening day at home, we would go skip school, tailgate, and go to the game. But I was really an A's fan because Oakland was so close to me. I could, you know, get right there pretty easy. And, uh, you know, they had Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, Dave Parker. So having Stu on the mound in the late 80s at a time when I was growing up, you know, that's who I mimicked when I was out, of, out, out in, in the streets playing baseball. And your, your mom, as I know her, is just such a very special woman. And I see a lot of her in you, a lot of the good characteristics. Tell us what she really means to you. Man, she means everything. My family in general. I mean, obviously, you know the story, you know, me and my grandmother, my father. But my mom has always been my rock. She's always been there. She's always been the one. You know, I grew up an only child, so she had to play with me. She had to go out and put catcher's gear on and and catch bullpens in the backyard. She had to play ping pong. She had to throw the football. She had to shoot baskets. So, you know, we really grew up in kind of like a big sister, little brother relationship, which we still kind of have today. So my mom is awesome. She's great. Actually, 
during COVID, this has been the longest I've, I've in my life haven't seen her. You know, I haven't seen her since January, I think. So that's been the roughest part is my kids and myself and even my wife. My wife, my wife Amber and my mom are really close. So we all miss her, you know, and this this has just been the toughest time for us, you know, not seeing her. This is the longest that I've ever been in my life without seeing her. I know this is as long as my kids have too. Yeah, and I know your mom was so integral, especially in Little League days. And and I think this is something you and I can relate to. There's something about Little League baseball that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a big leaguer, but there's something about Little League baseball and dreaming. And just the being on the field and being on that team, and there's something about that. And I know Little League was very, very special for you in Vallejo. Yeah, it was. And, and like I said, going getting back to Vallejo, being a baseball city, Little League ran that and, and drove that. And where I played North Vallejo Little League, I always consider us to be the best. <laughs> but it was some really good Little Leagues around. But the colors for my Little League was orange and black. So, like, we took pride in that. Like, we took pride in wearing our colors. My team during the regular season was, the name of my team was called Foster Lumber. We were considered like the Yankees of of North Vallejo Little League. So we always had really good teams. We always won a lot of games. But I, I told my son this the other day. I'll be 11, 12 years old, and, and I'm playing against my best friends in the world, you know, like still to this day. And those battles were real. So if I have a big game against you know, one of my best friends, just say another good team in my league was called, they were called Omega Sci-Fi. So we, so when Foster Lumber and Omega played each other, it was like the Yankees and the Red Sox. It was a big deal. Like everybody came to the park. It was always great players. And if I was starting that day, if I'm pitching that day, I got the same feeling that I get when I step out on the mound at Yankee Stadium. It's the same nerves. It's the same. It's the same. So it's the same game. You just get older. You're still playing a kid's game. So you know, I've been lucky and blessed in that way to be able to to live up my dream and play until I'm 40 years old. But it really started at four years old at North Little, Little League with, you know, and, and starting playing Little League and, and really dreaming about getting to the Little League World Series. That was that was always our ultimate goal. We came a couple games short when I was 12, but and I still we still talk about it. We still think about that. So, yeah, Little League was huge for me uh, growing up. Yeah, I agree with all that. So you make it to the big leagues at the young age of 20. You win 17 games right out of the chute. You play for 19 seasons. You receive all types of awards. But for me, the most impressive thing about you for me is that you just always would take the ball. I don't care if your arm was hanging, your knee was sore. You were just, and you hear this from all your teammates, the perfect teammate. And and where did that drive and that desire come from to be such a good teammate and to put the team ahead of yourself? I honestly think it came from Coach Hobbs, my high school coach. You know, I got a chance. I, I met him when I was 13 years old, and that was just something he would always drive home for me. He would always make sure that I knew that I was the leader of the team, make sure that I knew that if I was doing the right things, most likely the team was going to do the right things. And it just kind of stuck with me. So, you know, wanting a ball in every situation, wanting to be a good teammate. And that really started when I was a teenager. But I always thought, like, for me, like, if we're playing in a big game, who else do I want on the mound besides myself? Like, fuck it, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather go out there myself. Like, I don't want to watch somebody else pitch game seven. I don't want to be in the stadium if it's game seven and it's my team and I'm not pitching. Like, I always wanted that responsibility. Whether we win or lose, I want to take that on. You know, I want to be the reason why we win or I want to be the reason why we lose. You know, that's always been you know, something that I was never scared of. And I guess it started when I was young. I mean, like I said, 
pitching in little league, you pitch in big games. For us, it was big games. So, you know, I was kind of groomed to that as, at a young age, for sure. Now, when you hear your name mentioned as a future Hall of Famer, and I would be guilty of telling people that, does that even resonate to you? I mean, does that can that sink in your stature in the, this great game? Swing and a miss. He got him. Strikeout number 3,000 for CC Sabathia. He becomes the 17th pitcher in Major League history to pick up 3,000 strikeouts. And there are his teammates congratulating him near the first baseline. Nah, not yet. I mean, maybe if one day, if I, you know, if I do get there, if I'm standing there in Cooperstown, but to just even have people mention my name in that light is a blessing for me. Like I said, where I came from and, and, you know, my story and everything I've been through to be sitting here today, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been a blessing. So just to even have people even mention me as a Hall of Famer, it's pretty cool. If it happens one day, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'll be ecstatic. You know, I never, but I never played for that. I never, I never played for, you know, the Cy Young or accolades or all-star games. You know, I always just played to win. Even up until I'm 10 years into my big league career, I still couldn't even start thinking about the Hall of Fame. I'm just thinking about I need to make it through this next season. I got to make it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was always just smaller bites instead of, like, this big, huge dream that I have. So it was always just small goals, small goals, small goals that turned into, you know, a career that people like to mention in the Hall of Fame. So hopefully it happens one day. Well, I hope so, too, and I'll be there. But your unselfish nature brought you 12 years ago, along with your wife, Amber, to launch the Pitch In Foundation. And Pitch is spelled very cleverly, P-I-T-C-C-H, Pitch In. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the mission and what really inspired you to step up and take action. Yeah, so the mission of Pitch In is to enrich kids in the inner city's lives through sports and education. And me and my wife and my mom, you know, we were trying to do some things in Vallejo. Before we met you, actually, we were trying to get the field renovated. I wanted to do some things at my Boys and Girls Club. And I just had all these big dreams, you know. I, like, that was my thing. Uh, I wanted to give back, more so than anything else. I wanted to give back to my community. I wanted to give back to Vallejo. I love Vallejo so much. And we were just trying to figure out ways. And it was Thanksgiving one year. We wanted to do a turkey drive. And Amber was like, you know, maybe we should just start our... We had did a couple of camps the years before. And Amber was like, well, maybe we should just start our own foundation. So we know that the money's going to the right places. And, you know, we're doing the right things with it. And... That's kind of where, you know, we we started the foundation. We met you, and the rest is kind of history. You know, all these fields later, and, you know, North Vallejo's still looking good, but it really started with the field that I played on, the field that, that meant so much to me. And, you know, you guys came in and did an awesome job, but it really just started because me and Amber had the vision of, or I really had the vision of really wanting to give back, and she you know, does what she does. She's, she's the executor. That's what she does. So I come up with these big dreams and these big plans and she puts it all together. Yeah. I want to touch on that a little bit more, you know, back in 2010, it was, you came to us to help refurbish your little league field in North Vallejo. And, and I show these pictures to people of you standing on the mound before we started and literally weeds to your knees. Mm -hmm. The before and after picture is the best of all time. Um, yeah. And it's just such a good thing that you did. Tell us what that meant when that field really turned into one of the best around. Yeah, that was that was a big deal for me because I grew up on that field and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that field. And to see, not just, just to see the field redone, but just to see the joy on 
the people in my neighborhood's face to see that field come back because when I was a kid in the in the eighties and nineties, that field was essential. I mean, you know where it is. It's in College Park, but it's essentially located between between three neighborhoods, which College Park, the Crescent, Lofus. And that was like a meeting place for everybody. So if it was a big game, everybody's going to the park. If it's a birthday or something, everybody's going to the park. So to kind of have that back and the day that we did the ribbon cutting and all those people out there and everybody was excited. And I mean, it just felt like I was 19 years old again, you know, and, and to to bring that back to the city and be able to do that for those kids meant the world. And, and, and literally, that's the reason why, you know, why I wanted to start the foundation and felt obligated, you know, as I started my career to start giving back. Yeah, I, I remember I, I was emceeing that event, uh, the ribbon cutting, and looking at your face, and the tears are coming down your eyes, and then I'm starting to lose it. But, you know, that's true feelings, you know? I mean, that's that's what it really, people don't, that haven't grown up with a field or a, a league that meant so much to a community, they just don't know what that really means, you know? Yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, it means so much to North Vallejo, just the, not just North Vallejo Little League, North Vallejo, the actual part of the city. Like, it felt good to be able to bring that back. And even doing the basketball court, which we renamed under my, my cousin's name, um, Demetrius Davis, when we did the Crest Park, that was a huge deal. I grew up on that park, and to be able to bring that park back, like, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to explain what those fields and what that park means to me, but I would be dead or in jail if it wasn't for those places. You know, like if I didn't have that baseball field to go to and play over the line with my friends and, you know, stay out of the streets or go up to that park. And I would go to that park and stay there on Saturday. I would go there Saturday mornings and be there until the sun went down, you know, and walk back to my grandmother's house. So those places really kept me out of getting in trouble. And and the reason why I'm able to sit here today and be able to still raise my family and have this long career is because of those places. Yeah. So how important are sports for inner city youth, in your opinion? I think it's, it's huge. I think it's just another outlet so people don't really turn to the street. I mean, if you have organized sports, if, whether it's boxing or basketball or anything, you know, I, I think you have a better chance of catching some of those kids before they turn to the streets, for sure. I mean, I'm one of those kids, for sure. So, you know, whether it's through the Boys and Girls Club or or through whatever, you know, Little League, local sports, POW, I would encourage every city, especially the inner cities, to start getting those programs back going and getting these kids back playing sports, whatever sport it is. And where do you stand on athletes as role models? Because in the inner city, kids in Vallejo, they say, hey, CC looks like me. Maybe I could be CC. What's your take on that? My take is, you know, I think it's different strokes for different folks, if that makes sense. For me, growing up where I grew up and, you know, like you said, the kids from Vallejo, like I have to be a role model. You know, I have to be that. You know, our city's so small and, you know, all our families, you know, I mean, everything is so together that I have to be that role model for the kid. I mean, and it doesn't even have to be a role model. For me, what I, what I think about a role model, I feel like I never lost myself. Like I never changed. I never, people were mad when I wore my hat crooked. And I wore the baggy pants and all of that stuff. And I'd be cussing off the mound and all. But that's who I am. That's me. And if I could connect with a kid in the inner city of Chicago or in Alabama or in Vallejo, that's what it's about. I mean, if they can see me going out there and being myself, maybe they can see themselves out there doing that. And that's what I saw in Dave Stewart. And that was the reason why I started playing baseball. So I always made a conscious effort to not lose myself in in being a baseball player, if that makes sense. Yeah, amen. Yeah, no, I, I get it. So we were fortunate enough to go on and work with you and pitch in. 
And we made a, we did a makeover of your high school baseball field, which is now named for you. We did a tot lot in Vallejo. We've actually done two basketball courts, a teen room at a boys and girls club in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And our most recent collaboration is really interesting. It's a new baseball field at St. Vincent's Home for Boys. And what I really like about it, the images are unreal. It's this beautiful green field and amongst acres of brown dirt. But it's, you know, it's, it's for us, it's something different. And I think probably for you, the word deserving oftentimes means kids who don't have the financial means. And this is the oldest orphanage west of the Mississippi. It was built in 1853. And these boys, you know, although they have some nice places to live and some food, they don't have any parents. And this is their first real opportunity to have something to call their own. And I'm real proud of how it turned out. I'm proud that you came to us to work on this. It's such a unique thing to do for, you know, for this place. And just want to get your quick thoughts on that. No, it's an incredible story. Like you said, you know, these boys have this field now to call their own. It's something that they can take care of. And it's beautiful. Like you said, I mean, it's in the valley in those mountains. Like it is insane. It looks, it looks awesome. So I'm super excited um, that we were able to collab again on this project and another beautiful field that you guys, you guys do such great work that, you know, Amber immediately, Amber and I immediately thought about you guys. And, you know, I'm just glad everything worked out and, and uh, I look forward to doing that ribbon cutting here soon. Yeah, that's spring. So, you know, now that your playing days are over, I love that the mission of Pitch In is very sustainable. You know, it's not only significant, you can see everything you're doing. It's it's not lip service, it's real, but it seems very sustainable. So now post-playing time, what do you see Pitch In in the future? Is it going to evolve into anything else or what, what do you really see? Man, I hope, hopefully it keeps evolving. But like you said, it's very sustainable. We can we can keep doing our backpack giveaway. We can keep doing our holiday uh, holiday giveaway. We can keep you know doing all the programs and different things that we do in my retirement. So you know our plan is to keep it going. You know, hopefully one of our kids steps up and and, and takes it over. Hopefully, Lil C here in the, in the future, and we can just keep going. You know, I'll, we change the logo a little bit, and we want to you know help other people start. You know, guys that don't have foundations that want to do a camp in their hometown. Hey, use pitch in. So if guys want to do a backpack giveaway in their hometown and they don't have a foundation, we want pitch in to be kind of be that vehicle for them. So yeah, we're always going to try to evolve and, and do whatever we can to, to keep helping kids in the community. You and your family have been very supportive of Black Lives Matter, and I want to get your take away on how we hopefully can be hopeful that this movement finally will be different than the other movements or uprisings that have happened for decades and decades. Tell us why hopefully we can be hopeful now. I think this time the conversation is different because everybody's involved. You know, I think in years past, it would just be the black community or people of color. I think everybody's involved top to bottom from the reason why we got it super involved and, and started protesting and going out to rallies because of our kids. My nine-year-old was like, hey, dad, like, are we going out to rally? Are we going out to protest? And, you know, it was just kind of a wake-up call for me and Amber. Like, hey, our kids are seeing what's going on. Like, are we just going to be those parents that during everything that was going on, we sat there on Instagram and fired off memes? Or are we going to get out and actually really do some work? So hence why we started going to rallies and marches and doing everything that we've been doing. But it really started with our kids. It really started with our nine-year-old. And, and he's <laughs> he's super active. And we go to those rallies and, you know, he's the, the main one yelling and calling out names and, you know, starting chants and stuff. So it's been a lot of fun to kind of see them involved 
I mean, obviously, it's been a tough time for our country. But to see my kids grow up and really kind of take ownership in their future is is an awesome thing to see. And I think that's what you're seeing across the board, kids everywhere. So I think that's why this will be a little different. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. It's it's just, it's frustrating to me because like you and I, we can build a baseball field in Vallejo and we can mm-hmm. build a teen center in the Bronx. Everybody knows it serves mostly the black community and most people are very happy with that. But if you attach, we did this because Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how people have issue with those three words <laughs> when I th- just don't don't. And I, I just don't think people should overthink it. You know, I don't know. I think people have a more of a problem with the actual organization of Black Lives Matter than actual Black Lives Matter. So people can't separate. And the people that don't want to have a conversation and don't want to help the black community, they could easily just point to say, oh, well, Black Lives Matter is a horrible organization, blah, blah, blah. No, we're not talking about the organization. We're actually talking about fucking black lives actually really mattering and you guys really caring about it. Not the, like, let's take the organization out of it and let's look really worried about these black people that are getting murdered in the street. And, you know, my son is seven, about to turn 17 next month. He's got dreads. He's about to start driving. Like, how do I deal with that? So that type of stuff, those conversations that I have to have with my son, Hopefully, he won't have to have with his son because people start taking Black Lives Matter real and not the organization, if that makes sense. That is exactly what I feel. And I just think what you said, if people can hear that, it's just don't read more into it. Just those three words and what are you going to do? Even though we serve the Black community for 25 years, we are going to develop our own program. We're going to, I think we're going to entitle it GT Ventures, where we're going to invest in young Black girls and boys who have a business idea or a charity idea they want to start up and help them with startup funding. And we hope to launch that this fall because I think it's, the marches are very, have been very powerful. My daughter, you know, like your son, she took me to one out on the ocean in Pacifica was with Black Girls Surf and it was a great gathering in the surf communities in support of of Black Lives Matter. And, And this one gentleman got up in front of everybody and and he had a great speech. He said, we're living in these COVID times which are completely unprecedented. We don't know what to do. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know, should we go to work? Should we go to school? Wear a mask? What do we do? But suppression of black people is completely precedented for 401 years. Come on. It's just, you know, it's just beyond time is up for me, you know? Yeah. The the one thing that like made me sad, I, we went to one rally and in Brooklyn and I remember I came back and I started crying. I was just thinking like, like I'm out marching with my nine year old and we're fighting for basic human rights for black people. And this is the same thing my grandfather was marching with my father about, you know, like in the sixties, like in the fifties and the sixties, like it's just, it sucks, man. It's, it's not, I shouldn't have to do this with my nine year old. Our country should be, we should be better off as a, as a people together, as a human race to not have, to march about Black Lives Matter. That I mean, that just made me super sad. And 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 like I said, hopefully my 17-year-old won't be out marching with his son about the same things 20 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you said it. It's now mainstream. So it's going to I don't think it's going to go away and a lot of good will come of it, I I hope. And I know you really respect the game. You you joined in on the as as a lot of us did the tip your cap campaign mm-hmm. in honor of the hundredth anniversary of Negro League baseball, which again was surprising. It took ninety years after slavery ended, after 
Juneteenth for, for Jackie to get into the big leagues. But you have a very fond respect for the game and its past, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And, and back again to Coach Hobbs, I didn't know much about the history of the game until I got to high school. I didn't know why my coach would always demand me to know certain things about Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby. I'm like, why do I need to know this shit? And he's like, I'm telling you, you, you need to study. You need to know all of this because one day – 15 years from now, you're going to be in the big leagues and you're going, you're going to wish that you had looked this stuff up. And I'm like, what do you – like, I, I didn't get it. You know what I mean? But he made me understand the history of the game and, and the reason why I was able to actually play the game. So, yeah, I mean, I have to credit him with all of that. And I got a chance to meet Buck O'Neill when I was 20 years old, my very first time in Kansas City. And he brought me to the Negro Leagues Museum, and I just kind of fell in love from there, walking through the museum – Seeing Satchel Page statue, you know, hearing all the stories about him and just all the all the different players. And obviously Satchel played for the Indians. He won the rookie of the year with the Indians. So it was just a natural thing for me to kind of really go off and, and really start looking up stuff on him and kind of falling into that rabbit hole. So it's been a lot of fun to, to this year we had the Roots of Fight stuff launched for the Negro Leagues. Yeah, like you got the Jackie Robinson shirt yeah. on. So it's just been really fun to be a part of the museum, be a part of the history and really be able to pay them homage and hopefully we can start telling some more of these stories. Yeah, it's 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 coming. It's just slow to come. I remember mm-hmm. when I got my first scouting job in the fall of 19, 1988. I mean, that's not like not that long ago. And the old-time scouts, you know, this is just the start of all this all the young young people coming into the game. I was kind of at the beginning of that. And the old-time scouts, many of them were all were all ex-players and they played before Jackie Robinson broke in. And I remember they would call me over and give me advice, young kid advice. And I remember a lot of them would say, this is what we do. If you see a black player, you write your report. And in the top right-hand corner, you put a black dot on that report. And then you send it into the office. The office will know it's a black player. Which I thought, first I thought, what's the purpose of that? But it's, you know, guys that grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s. It just was so, it's just so ingrained in them. And that's why I hope this movement now doesn't take generations. Like, I hope it's not your kids are still, you know, are doing it to their kids. You know, that, yeah. I'm hoping we can expedite it. I don't know why it takes so long. And I really just hope and pray for it to, to come quicker. Yeah, no, for sure. And like you said, it's just, it was just so ingrained back then. But, but people are waking up. So hopefully we'll start to do the right things. And like you said, it won't, we'll see it in our lifetime. It won't be, you know, the next generation. Yeah. And I, I just want to kind of close with, uh, you know, when scouts see a young player grow up and get to the big leagues, they, they definitely have a sense of pride. But for me to know you for over half your life as a man and as a father and, you know, now as a social activist, I, I can really say I'm even more proud of you for those reasons than, than your baseball accolades. Oh, thank you. And and I can say that I've been blessed to have people like you in my life, you know, like getting a chance to meet you at, at 17 years old and then have, you know, reconnecting, you know, 10 years later and then having, you know, guys like Coach Hobbs and different guys. I just feel like, 
you know, I was kind of set on the path to meet all these people that were going to help me in my career. And it, it's just been a blessing. I always say that people, you know, get on me because I always say my life's been a blessing. My career's been a blessing because it really has because of people like you and, and everybody else that I've met in my life. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's it's a pleasure. I look forward to so much more work we can do together. And I, I love you for everything you stand for. And can't wait to see you out here this spring at the opening of this new field. Yeah, for sure. I can't wait. I'm, I'm excited to, to cut another ribbon. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, CC. Best to you and your family. And we'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thanks for having me. have just enjoyed an episode of the good tidings podcast highlighting the goodness in people to learn more about and to support the good tidings foundation log on to goodtidings.org this monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of response responsibility.org don't miss out on the good tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts